This is Dalio's Principles, a philosophical examination. The unofficial podcast companion for Ray Dalio's book, Principles. This podcast will deeply explore the book and principles. The podcast is hosted by Micah Bays and John Sextro. Micah has a PhD in philosophy and has taught numerous college philosophy courses, including The Meaning of Life, Ethics, and Reason and Argument. John shares his perspective from years of experience trying to live out Ray's principles in his life and work. And you can follow us on Twitter. Micah is at Micah Bays, all one word. And I am at John Sextro, all one word. And now, this week's episode. I'm Micah Bays. I'm John Sextro. We're back here again with Dalio's Principles, a philosophical examination. And this episode, we're going to be talking about the final principle in the first series of principles, all rolled up under principle one. And this principle is called look at the machine from a higher level. Micah, this one is, it's a a little bit longer as far as the principles go in the book. There was some more detail that was provided, some some even uh, additional sub-principles to go with this mid-level principle. Uh, but I think it's very interesting taking a look at this one, and it, it's sort of rounding out the, the first set of principles in the book. And this one really is talking about looking at yourself uh, from a higher level, looking at yourself as a machine and and having this, you mentioned before, the, the philosophical perspective of this like God's eye view of what's going on. And I, I want to ask you, first off, how do you feel about this term machine uh, in, in the context of Ray asking us to look at look at ourselves as a machine. Yeah, well, I think you know this term "machine" definitely can be a loaded term. I think some people might be maybe opposed to it uh, or have concerns about it. From you know, like we've talked about from a free will perspective, like are we just robots? Are we entirely programmed? And you know, there's a lot of deep philosophical issues about you know how you understand free will and all of that. But uh, you know, what I would say is at least as you're thinking about this, I would kind of set those concerns aside or maybe those concerns aren't all that relevant here in the sense of you can think of yourself as a machine, right? This is kind of a um, heuristic, a a way of viewing yourself just to step back. And, you know, again, so you don't have to see it as, oh, I'm entirely programmed. Um, I have to operate in a certain way. but it's more of for Ray, he's going to say, think about, you know, especially at the machine level, right? You have input, then there's things that go on, and then you get an output. And right in our everyday life, we're constantly taking input as far as um, not just information, but, you know, your environment and everything else. And you are trying to accomplish all sorts of things, right? There's all sorts of outcomes you want. And right, just driving to work. You think about, okay, what do I need to do to get to work? Um, there's a process for that. And, you know, maybe you take ways and, you know, it'll send you different routes. But um, you might say, well, you know, when I go one route, um, one path, it takes a longer time. And so I'll try something different. Um, so th- the point here is just don't get too hung up on this idea of us as a machine as far as you might say metaphysical implications about, you know, are we just programmed? 
Um, the point is just to kind of, I think, make it a little bit simpler as we think about things to think about, okay, there's inputs and there's outputs and what can we do in the middle, right? Between those two things to get the outcome that we really want. Yeah. I understand people maybe not liking the term machine, but I like your explanation because I think that really is helpful to uh, setting yourself in a mindset of, uh, I, I can, I can improve this in a way I can, I can decide to take in different inputs. I can decide to process the information differently or do the, the work differently or you know, even the mechanical aspect of, of the work that I'm doing and have a different result. And if you consider it in, in sort of those piece parts, it's, it starts to uh, create some separation between maybe your ego and how you're doing something or what you're doing and gives you that God's eye view to look at it and say, let me just analytically break this apart and figure out where things breaking down. How could I do things better? And et cetera. So he, Ray gives this example of uh, trying to take a hill military example. How did you see that? Yeah, I think that was you know helpful. You know, he just for our listeners, just a little bit of a recap, especially if they haven't heard it um, or read the book, but um, Ray talks about when you think about, let's say you are wanting to take a hill, like for as a military, you're wanting to take a hill, you're trying to capture the enemy or, you know, just get that, um, conquer that, that hill. Um, there's various roles that you probably will want to have. You know, he talks about, I think scouts, right. um, and you know, they're going to be positioned at different places on the hill. And then, right. They're going to have different roles. They're going to have different things that they're both, that they are all trying to do. Um, and they needed to have different skills. Like you wanted the scouts to be fast. Right. And so you can think about the roles and then you can, you know, he says, even once you figure out what the roles are and what the characteristics of each role is, well, then you have to ask also, well, which people should I put in those different roles? And so, um, he's going to say that's effectively the machine. Um, you have the design for what the various roles are and you have the people that you're going to assign to those roles. Um, so that's an example of a machine for Ray. I like, uh, I like the, the metaphor of a role and then a person and that, and they're not even metaphors. I mean, a role, I guess is a metaphor. Um, but there's a book called holacracy, I think is the, the title of the book. And I'll double check that and make sure. Uh, I credit the author in the show notes and, and he uses this concept, the same concepts that you have people who come with all of their stuff. And then you have roles, which says you're going to do certain things. And it's, it's a combination of the person that embodies or sort of steps into that role that then brings the energy and the motion and the power into that role to then become the thing to do the thing, whatever the job might be. Uh, and, and so that there's, you know, is it the right person stepping in to the right role? And I always think of like some sort of iron man sort of <laughs> in my mind. That's what I think of where I'm stepping into this suit, this, this iron man suit that is this role. And am I going to be able to operate effectively in that role given my skills and capabilities? Yeah, And then you have all of those people coming together uh, to work on a team in a lot of cases to, to accomplish something. 
And so you can think of design from the perspective, or you can you can look at a higher level at yourself in that role, or you can look at a higher level at the team and keep scaling out from there, like a, a department, an organization, a company, a country, the world, right? Yeah. And I, you know, I think one interesting thing here is, you know, this idea of you've got goals and then you have a machine that's supposed to help you then achieve those goals. Right. And so that machine is going to be responsible for outcomes. So there are actually going to be a whole host of these. Uh, you might even say it's almost like a you know Russian doll, right. In the sense of a babushka. Uh, yes, I guess so. <laughs> um, but you might think from you know, your own perspective, like when you're thinking about your life as a whole, what is it that you want the outcomes to be? And so then Ray's going to say, you want to think about the machine that you have in order to achieve those outcomes, right? Given your goals. Well, one of those things you probably will need to do is have a job, right? Have a career of some sort, right? Most people aren't you know, able to live and achieve the things they want without a job. Well. Within your job, there are probably certain outcomes that you want, right? To have a successful job, have a successful career. And so within your job, you will have a machine, right? There are, there's a certain design that you need to have in order to create those outcomes that you want. And you need to figure out what people need to, you know, take on those roles within that machine. Um, Right. And then, you know, just in your personal life, there are certain outcomes you want. There are certain ways, let's say, that you want your family life to be like. And so it's helpful to have a design for, okay, how are we going to get our family to where we want to be? You know, maybe you want to have a family that's very um, open about, you know, their ideas and open about their feelings. And if that's not currently working, you know, if that's not the outcome you currently have, then you need to make some kind of change. Um, and so then there's going to be design and people uh, decisions that need to be made. Now, presumably you're not getting, well, hopefully getting rid of people out of your family. But the question is, how do you make right your current family? How do you design it so that it can be a more open family, you know, as far as ideas and beliefs and so on. So on. Um, but anyways, those are just examples of how there's all, there's going to be a whole host of, machines within your life that are going to need designing then. Definitely. So let's, I wanted to uh, mention a quote here that, that Ray has from the book. It says the biggest mistake most people make is to not see themselves and others objectively, which leads them to bump into their own and others weaknesses again and again. Uh, Micah. So why do you think the, that people, they have, they have a hard time seeing themselves objectively. Uh, lots of reasons, I think, you know. Um, I mean, so, I feel like I am in a place today where I don't have a hard time seeing myself objectively. Like, I'm pretty honest about, uh, honest with myself as far as where my shortcomings are. Gotcha. Um, I'm just a better person than everybody else, right? That, that's true. I mean, uh, that's, the, that's the obvious thing. Maybe one of my shortcomings <laughs> is I'm too prideful. <laughs> Oh no, John, not that at all. Um, so I, I guess there's kind of two ways to ask this. Like, um, so you were, I think touching on, I think the pride part, you know, in the sense that some people can out of pride, um, have a real resistance to hearing what other people think about how they perform or what they do. 
um, what their flaws are just in general, right? So you might be real resistant to hearing that. But then there's, a, I guess, maybe a, just the larger question of why is it that a human person has difficulty at all in seeing themselves accurately, you might say, or objectively? Why is it that we have blind spots that we can't see you know, ourselves? Um, yeah, because there doesn't seem to be an advantage, um, like an evolutionary advantage or a survival of the fittest sort of advantage to, uh, to fail to be honest with ourselves about where, you know, or be objective when we're viewing our skills and capabilities. It would seem to, it would seem to be more detrimental. Like if I think I can run faster than I can and I can jump faster than I actually can, and I'm out there in the wilderness and I'm running from a bobcat. I'm like, I'm fast. I can jump. I run. I try and jump across this. You know, I jump two feet and fall to my death. Right. But doesn't seem helpful. Right. Um, so one is, you know, and there's a lot of psychology that goes into this and I'm no psychologist. Um, but, you know, the reality is our minds are structured a certain way that, you know, it operates in a certain way. And so there are maybe some things that we pick out more easily than others. And so as a result, there's some things that we don't pick out quite as easily. Um, and I, I wonder if it's like, if it's, if people are deluding themselves, like they deep down know, and I think about this for myself, if, if I think uh, I'm really good at something, do I, am I really deluding myself or uh, it, do I just not know all the things that I don't know? But within the context of something like that's mechanical, like running, I can tell pretty pretty well if I'm good at that or not. If I'm fast, if I have good endurance, and 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 unequivocally know yes or no, I'm good at it. Mm-hmm. You know what? What? How fast do other people run? How's other? What's the other people's endurance look like? Right. Yeah. When you have some bar that's pretty clear that you can judge yourself against or measure yourself against. Maybe that has a lot to do with it is the fact that some of these things just don't have clear bars of measurement for them. Mm-hmm. Like how, how smart am I or, or how wise, you know, you could take a test and maybe find out. But if you don't do that, you may think you're smarter than you really are. Right. Um, yeah. You know, I think some of it too, uh, you know, just comes down to ignorance, you know, um, in the sense of, look, there's just a lot of things we don't know. And um, so that makes it harder for you to see, for you to see yourself objectively. Cause um, you know, if you don't know something about yourself <laughs> um, and I think too, you know, the, um, our own particular attitudes or emotions colors, how we view a scenario. And you know, unless you can, you might say, triangulate with other people who maybe have different emotions or attitudes than you, you may not see how, you know, your particular behavior is perceived by others. Because you assume that, you know, how you perceive a situation certainly is influenced by what your attitude or your dispositions are. Um, and so if someone else doesn't share your same attitudes or, um, values that's going to affect you know how they see your behavior and um so partly you just need influence of others to help maybe kind of triangulate get a better sense of i think so too i think you do need that you need you need people around you to sort of mirror mirror back to you your behavior and 
um, your ability and, and to provide you information that you can't, you can't well observe yourself or that you have a, a problem that we have problems of observing ourselves. So people around you can sort of mirror some of that back to you and show you, uh, you're, you're not doing well here. You're not doing well there. I, th- I think that part of the, the problem, ongoing problem that I see is that oftentimes people have a, have a hard time even believing when someone else points something out to them. And so you need multiple people, not just one person. Uh, and then I guess you, you also want to have some amount of um, faith in what someone is saying. You know, how do I know that you, Micah, should be giving me feedback on my, my philosophizing? Well, you have a PhD in philosophy, so that sets the the ground pretty well to say I should be uh, willing to take in information that you have about on those subjects. Right. Uh, I was listening to a podcast uh, actually just earlier this week. Um, it's called the Knowledge Project. Um, Shane Parrish is the uh, host, and he interviews a really a lot of um, kind of top people who are concerned with decision making and. Um, one of the conversations, one of the episodes he had was uh, decoding difficult conversations uh, with Sheila Heen. Um, and one thing she was talking about was, you know, we have a difficult situation or difficult conversation and one person is getting really riled up, you know, as the conversation goes on and, you know, you can tell that they're really passionate. They're really, you know, to some degree, maybe they're upset. Well, some people, um, like myself, uh, the way I tend to respond to someone else getting riled up is to have a, to calm myself down. Um, and I can be calm. And she was pointing out, she wasn't talking about me, but she was saying when someone does this, right, when they become really calm, that just makes the other person even angrier and more upset. And in part, she says, it's because they perceive the person who's being calm as not caring, right? And so this is that idea of, you know, what different emotions you bring to the situation is going to affect how you evaluate the situation. And so, you know, she said, you know, if you are someone who tends to calm down in a heated uh, scenario, one of the things that would be beneficial is for you to verbalize that, hey, I do care about this. I do think this is important. And that's going to help the other person see, okay, this person isn't just checking out of the conversation. You know, it's just a different way of handling that scenario. So that's just an example, right, of how our emotions or attitudes, um, our behavior can affect how we evaluate something. Yeah, and our emotions are are very Im- important to how we how we respond. And there's a there's another statement that Ray makes in this chapter where he says that successful people are those who can go above themselves to see things objectively and manage those things to shape change. And in a lot of cases, that makes me think of my mindfulness practice. So I've shared before uh, on the on the podcast that I use mindfulness as a way to help sort of calm my mind and and try to give myself uh, improved focus and also to be less emotional uh, in times of difficult conversations, like you were referring to as they were discussing on that podcast. As a result. I would probably, Micah, be one of those people that's sort of calm in in a heated debate, and maybe that would anger someone else. But um, I, I think that Ray's point is is a good one here. That 
you need to be able to to sort of step back from yourself and take yourself out of take yourself away from the emotion of everything involved in this situation in an argument uh but more importantly in uh in getting back to that higher level viewpoint of what's going on and that very much relates to what I try to do in my mindfulness practice is get out of um trying to respond all of the time to noise, sound, words, emotions, feelings, etc. and and stepping back and getting to a higher level where I'm just observing all of those things happening and realizing that I don't have to have a response. I don't have to react. If my nose itches, I don't have to scratch it. And I don't even have to ignore it. And then what I do in my mindfulness practice is I actually focus in on that thing and just deal with it. Like if my nose itches, that's a very annoying thing for me and for probably for other people. But what's crazy is the less you try and think about it, the more annoying that becomes. Uh, the more you focus on it in a mindfulness practice like this, it goes away. Uh, so it's it's a surprising result. But again, I, I'm just thinking that there's something tied to you know being able to be mindful in order to allow yourself to be objective about the things uh, that you're wrestling with. And Ray says something in here, which is he starts to get into, uh, I think it's in this part, Micah, where he talks about the four the four choices you encounter when you have a weakness. Um, so maybe we can talk a little bit more about those. And in the context of, you know, if you are bad at something, you have some choices, right? And one of them is in, in the context of, of this discussion that Ray mentions, he says, you can deny it, which doesn't seem helpful, right? You can accept it, acknowledge it, and and uh, try to improve on those and turn them into strengths. You can accept it and try and find ways around it, or you can uh, change what you're going after. Uh, and one of the things that he says is sometimes when you're looking at your machine, you're going to have to fire yourself. How did that? <laughs> how did that sit with you? Once you have a machine, once you have an outcome that you're going after, and you've got a design, don't think that you always have to have yourself be the person who's fulfilling the role. Um, and reality is, you know, we, we all do this all the time as far as, you know, if your car breaks down, you have this outcome of you want your car to be working. Uh, now you could go and, well, depending on what it is, you could go and fix it yourself. Um, not, especially me. Now, could, not me. I could rarely fix. I think it would be, it would be a rare exception for me to be able to fix something about my car. <laughs> if you ever see, I've, I've, uh, I know an, as much about cars as I've had problems with them. <laughs> right. So, uh, and not even all of that. Um, cause other people have fixed a lot of problems on my cars, but, um, you know, I can use YouTube, uh, to discover how to fix certain things on my car. Um, but the point here is just, you know, you want a running car and we already, most of the time, right. We'll hire a mechanic to fix it. So that's where, you have this outcome, you what you want. And the design is, all right, have someone who has the knowledge and the tools, right? And the time to perform the repair. And now the question is, are you the person who should fulfill that role or should you hire that out? We do that all the time. And I think, you know, what helps 
here with listening to Ray is to think about in your everyday, well, just in your work life, you know, do you think you have to be able to do it all? Or are you willing to say, hey, you know, there might be parts of my job that currently maybe are my responsibility, but maybe I'm not the right person to be doing that. Now, of course, it depends on your employer and what the management structure is and how much you are able to change those things. Um, but maybe what you need to do to perform your job the best is actually find other people to do uh, parts of your job that you're not so good at. And presumably you're not just delegating it off and, you know, than just not doing anything, right? It's not because you're being lazy, right? Maybe you take on additional responsibilities that you can do well. Um, and so it's right that whole like symbiotic idea of people are helping each other and everyone's better off. We operate the podcast on the value for value model. We're entirely listener supported. If you enjoy the podcast and find value in the information and entertainment you receive, Visit our website at daliosprinciples.fireside.fm slash donate. You can also help us grow by promoting us on social media. So get out there and tell all of your friends about the podcast and help us spread the word. And now back to the show. It, it can be a, a sticky situation. Sometimes you've been hired to particularly do the thing and you better be good at that whatever that thing is, whatever the primary task of the job is. So if you're, if you're like a salesman, you better be a good sales person. You better be able to sell. You're not going to be able to necessarily like fire yourself from that and in those terms and find someone else to do that for you. But if you were very, if you weren't very detail oriented as a salesperson and didn't have a lot of success at like managing your schedule you could try to find a way to hire that out, fire yourself from managing your schedule. Maybe you have um, an assistant of some sort that helps you manage that schedule. So, but it's much harder in uh, in a profession where you're the individual performing all the things. Maybe like a doctor, you know, even doctors though, they, may, they might pull in a specialist in a case where they don't have the expertise, so they sort of fire themselves in that perspective and say, "Listen, I can't." I can't solve what this is. It's not my area. I should get some help. Uh, when you're working on a team, like you mentioned, Micah, you can you can really sort of try to take advantage in a good way of the other people that are around you and say, you know, maybe I can do this so that you can help me do do this other thing because I'm not I'm not good at it. I'm not good at managing my calendar. So maybe can you help me manage my calendar and I'll I'll help do the other thing, right? So you can you can sort of horse trade a little bit around that. But having at least having even the the objectiveness about yourself to know that there's something that you're not very good at and seeking a way to do something about it is important. So and then there are other there are other ways. One of the the I guess the third thing that that Ray mentions is um accept and find ways around the thing. He says that's one that that is often overlooked. What did you think about that? I, it wasn't one that I guess clearly popped into my brain when I was thinking through this initially. Yeah. Um, I, I think, you know, something I'm just trying to think of some practical scenarios where this, you know, can occur is so, uh, I guess just with having taught, you know, um, I think about maybe students who aren't very good in a certain area 
in a certain subject matter. And, you know, when you're in college, you have certain um, general education requirements. Maybe someone who's, maybe there's a humanities requirement and the person isn't really good, let's say, at history. Um, I'm guessing you're going to have to take history. But, uh, right, if there's different types of classes that meet that requirement, you might say, all right, I'm going to work around it. I'm not going to take that one class that I'm not very good at, let's say, history. Uh, but I am really good at logic or I'm good enough at it, logic. And so I'll take the logic course. Right? That's a way of working around your weakness. You're not trying to become better um, and you're not denying it. You're saying, I, I'm not that good at history. But this thing that I want, the degree, I can get by um, taking a logic course instead. Um, yeah. So instead of like, just banging your head on the the same problem, trying to figure you're, you're at that point, you're basically saying, I'm going to try and figure out some way around this. I, I'm not, I'm not good at this thing. I need to go another direction. Right. Yeah. Maybe you took the history class and you failed. Right. And you could say, well, I guess I could try and take it again or work around it and take a different class that fulfills the same requirement. Um, you talked about the salesperson um, who isn't very good at their job. They're not, salesperson, you know, they don't just don't have those skills for them, right? They have, you might say a higher outcome that they're wanting besides just being, you know, so in their role as a salesperson, they have this desired outcome of making sales. Well, apparently they're not very good at that and they could stay in their job, but they presumably have a higher outcome of a higher level outcome that they're really wanting of, you know, a successful career. So one of the things they could do is just say, all right, I want a successful career. I'm not a good salesman, so I'm going to find a career where I don't have to do sales. Uh, when I actually, when I was, when I first graduated college, my, I guess, second job, I was leasing apartments and it was kind of a sales job, but it wasn't like heavy, you know, it wasn't like you didn't, you barely made any commission. It was largely just an hourly rate. And you didn't have to give people like the hard sell. Like, what is it going to take for me to put you in this apartment today? Right. Well, I mean, you could, I guess, but yeah. I was never going to do that because I can't stand that. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, and I generally had the lowest sales, you know, of the other people in the office. Um, and I just knew that was not a good fit for me. But at the time, right, it paid the bills when I was first out of college. Um, and so, you know, I figured out, okay, I should just change my job if I'm going to have a more successful career. Not that I ever really saw that as like a end career path or something for me. Um, and then on just like a more trivial note, as far as accepting your weaknesses and finding ways around them, I'm not always the best at remembering things, you know, to take them with me. Like when I leave. So for example, my lunch, uh, so one of the things I sometimes will do is put the keys to my car in the refrigerator with my lunch because without my keys, I'm not going to be able to leave. And so then when I go to leave, if I haven't grabbed my keys, I'll be like, wait, where are my keys? And I'm like, oh yeah, they're in the fridge. Oh yeah, it's because I need to grab my lunch. So that's a way of working around a weakness. Oh, that's a good one. And so I guess we're left with the final two, which are acknowledge it and get better. Pretty straightforward. Or deny it. I like that he includes that one. I mean, it is an option. It is an option to say, no, you're wrong. I'm not, I'm not bad at running. I'm great at running. Can't you see? But um, it's good to know that those, all of those things exist within the sphere of, of what you can do to do with these weaknesses. 
Yeah. So, and you know, another uh, principle of raise or sub principle, and I'm paraphrasing here, but he said, you know, it's difficult because it's difficult to see oneself objectively. Um, you need to rely on the input of others and the whole body of evidence. Um, so this kind of reminds me of back when I was in uh, undergrad, we talked about Jahari's, Jahari's window. Um, and Jahari's window is this idea of with respect to yourself, there are things that are known about you and there are things that are unknown about you. Um, and so it's these four quadrants. And so, you know, you have the four quadrants, they look like a window. Um, and the top left quadrant is things about you that are both known to yourself and that are known to others, right? Other people realize it about you and you realize it about yourself. And then, uh, the bottom left is something that is known to yourself, right? You know about it, but other people don't. Um, and then the top right quadrant is something that's not known to yourself, but it is known to others. And um, so that might seem kind of odd. Well, how is there something I don't know about myself, but others know, right? And so you think about people who, um, again, you know, a lot of behavioral stuff, probably you don't realize, oh, you know, you kind of, you know, get upset really easily, right? From your perspective, you're maybe thinking, oh, no, I get upset at the right amount. <laughs> and other people see, wow, he gets real angry really fast. And then the last thing is things that aren't known about you by yourself or by others. Um, and so I think one of, the, one of the things you can do with a Chahari window is um, you could have a bunch of adjectives that you could then give a list of them to someone else and say, you know, of these adjectives, which do you think describe me? And then, you know, you could put that in the known to others side. And then you could see, well, is that something you know about yourself as well? But it's just this recognition that how you see yourself, what you know about yourself, isn't necessarily the same as what others see about you. And so here you could just could be adjectives like, uh, you know, quick to you know get angry or, um, you know, maybe easygoing, calm, um, those sorts of things, or it could be. More specifically, strengths and weaknesses within you know your role as a you know at your work or within your family, um, but it's just a, a way in which you can kind of help identify the things that are known about you and what others know about you. That the Jahari's window, I've never heard of it before. I've, I've never heard it described that way or attributed to that individual, but I certainly understand the concepts of it and and am aware of it. And it's interesting how well it ties into. Uh, the things that Dalio says in this in this principle, and particularly needing to rely on others uh, uh, for input and and trying to be objective, and uh, so it's interesting to see how this this idea, the Jahari's window, conveys a lot about what we're talking about in in this particular principle. And and I think I mentioned I forgot to mention you know it was developed by I think a couple of psychologists one of whose last name was Jahari. Don't remember the other ones, but, um, and I don't know if there's been further, you know, psychological, um, research and so on about maybe better ways of identifying what's known about you and so on. But this is at least a place to start. What's unfortunate is that there's that, that bottom right hand quadrant that is just things you don't know about yourselves and, and things that other people uh, don't don't see or know about you either, and they have to be impacting you in some way 
but you're just not objectively able to observe those things, nor is anyone else. So that's like a whole, a whole fourth of, of this area of the window that I just don't have like an opportunity to do anything about. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's a, a question about how well do we know ourselves? Um, and, you know, to understand truly like what all of your motives are, your attitudes are, what all of your beliefs are. Um, and I think the reality is, you know, a lot of times those things can go unknown because as you mentioned, they're unobserved. Um, and one is it could be that you just are never in a situation where a certain aspect of you can come into play, you might say, or maybe there's so many other things going on. It's hard to isolate. Oh, you know, Mike could behave this way in part because of this attitude that he has or this value he has or this belief he has, right? Cause there's so many other beliefs or attitudes or, um, behaviors that are maybe more visible or more prominent and you just attribute it just to those things. Um, so yeah, it may just take more time and being in different scenarios. Sure. Ray goes on to say that if you're open-minded enough and determined, you can get virtually anything you want. Micah, this sounds very much like, I think, uh, the principle that we talked about previously, which was the brand new principle that, that Ray had written and, and shared on LinkedIn, which was all about if you're creative and uh, open-minded, that you can, you can... Creative and flexible, I think. Creative and flexible. Great. That you can uh, achieve what you, you know, your desired outcomes. Right. And yeah. And in particular with your job and your, you know, having a job that you want and having a job that pays you enough. Do you think this, you know, we've talked a bit about it in the, in the previous episode, but do you think that this is just too optimistic? Yeah, I I think, you know, well, at least if you understand, you know, I guess, yes, at least as stated uh, in the sense that he says you can get virtually anything you want. And, um, because, you know, when he talks about that principle, um, which is a newer principle than the principle we're currently discussing. So maybe it's a revision of his view to some degree. Or an evolution of the view. Right. When he, so when he, in the new principle, when he talks about having a job that you want, he's not saying maybe it's the best job you can imagine for yourself. But he's just saying, hey, it is a job that you would want. Something that you would like to go to, you know, most days. Um but here he's saying, you know, you can get virtually anything you want. And so, right, if you were to ask, I think most people, imagine a world in which there were no obstacles to getting what you wanted. Now list out all of those things, right? I'm guessing they would be some pretty grand wants, some pretty big wants, like I'd like to travel all the time, right? I'd like to go see really neat places. Um, I'd like to have a really nice house. I'd like to have a perfect family. I'd like, you know, there's a whole lot of things I think could go on this list. And to say that you could get virtually get anything you want seems again, too optimistic. Um, But here, I think that's where it's helpful to have an understanding of his new principle um, to kind of minimize our sense of what we want. Um, and I guess the I guess the word virtually sort of gives you the ultimate uh, out clause, if you will, to say, well, you know, within reason, you'd have to maybe maybe make some concessions here or there. Um, but then then there's this thought that, well, you know, if you if you sacrificed enough and you were determined 
enough, like it mentions, um, that you, you could, you can get there now, you know, becoming an astronaut, it might be hard, uh, to get there. So I, I'm not sure. I think it is optimistic. I think you're right. Yeah. I mean, definitely. I would guess that there are quite a few people who have really put forth a lot of effort to become an astronaut and ultimately were not selected. Right. I'm, I'm thinking about, um, we watched, uh, was it first man on the moon or, uh, it was first something, but it was about Neil Armstrong and, you know, you just saw all of the people who were wanting to go to space, but didn't get to, right. They were excellent pilots, you know, um, cause they typically, typically took them from like the air force and that was the pool of people that were, you know, potentially going to be astronauts. Well, there were quite a few of them who didn't get to become astronauts. And here was, you know, these are very dedicated people, obviously. You know, you don't become a top Air Force pilot just by, you know, backing into it in a sense. Fun fact for everyone listening, the, the original astronauts, there were more astronauts that got pulled from the Navy than, than the Air Force. Okay, so Micah doesn't know as much as he thinks he does. <laughs> just, just fun fact. I mean, no, that is good to know. You're right. There were some that were from the Air Force. But even today, it's like... There, we don't have much of a space program. So if you're an astronaut now, even if you get into the program, even if there is still a program for astronauts, um, we're not doing that very much. So unless you're going to be Elon Musk and create your own, or maybe Jeff Bezos and create your own rocket program, I, I guess you could do it. You could still do it. You know, it's like, but is it really attainable? And then the the evolution of that, which is was the newer principle, I think is, is a is a in my mind a better way to look at this where it's like you know you can if you're flexible enough and creative you can you can attain something akin to what you really ultimately want it mhm yeah i think too one interesting thing might be would ray say well look when i talk about anything you want people might be deluded about why they really want something right um so the people who wanted to be astronauts maybe Reality is most people, if they became astronauts, wouldn't really be as pleased with it or happy as with it as they thought. Um, and I think Ray may say something like, look, most people probably really want a pleasurable life, an enjoyable life. And a lot of these things we pursue, right? Because he talks about having a lot of money or having fame don't in the end really make you more happy. <laughs> and so when he says... Hey, you can have virtually anything you want. And what you want is, you know, just an enjoyable life. Well, that's actually achievable by most. Um, cause if you think what you really want is, you know, some hard to achieve thing, you might just be wrong about that, that that's not actually what you want. Cause if you were to actually be successful and achieve it, you'd find that, Oh, this wasn't as great as I really thought it was going to be. Indeed. And I think that Ray gives us a lot to think about in, uh, in principle, all along with, with this first set of principles in the book. And he sort of leaves us, Micah, with a number of things to consider, uh, all wrapped into the first set of principles in the book. Five, five things, in fact, he says, and I guess we can use these as sort of our points to ponder for this episode as, as takeaways for everyone, these five items. He says, Number one, don't confuse what you wish were true with what is really true. You know, this is radical uh, truth. You got it. Roughly. Don't 
Don't worry about looking good. Worry instead about achieving your goals. Focus on your outcomes. Don't overweight first order consequences relative to second and third order consequences. So we have a principle to, to, to focus on the second and third order consequences as well and judge them in a reasonable way. Don't let pain stand in the way of progress. All about pain again. And then finally, don't blame bad outcome on anyone but yourself. So being responsible and accountable for your outcomes. Right. Yeah. So these obviously kind of a summary of a lot of the major principles we've been looking at with our life, with the life principles. So that wraps up all of the principles contained under principle one. In our next episode, Micah, we'll be back cracking the book open to a whole new section on uh, on what's next, principle two. All right. We'll see you then. Thanks, Micah. Thanks, John. Thanks for listening. Let's keep the conversation going on our subreddit, Dalio's Principles at reddit.com. The subreddit is Dalio's Principles, all one word. Join us to interact with a community of like-minded individuals. 